Hello everyone, our self-care community theme today, Cass Widenet, will be speaking about health systems and providers seeking to provide value-based care to their patients, which of course is a very wide net because it basically includes all healthcare providers. My guest today is Jennifer Turney. Jennifer is a healthcare financial executive. She's recognized by the NCQA as a patient-centered medical home certified content expert. And if that's a mouthful, <laughs> and we'll have to ask about what that is, <laughs> um, and author of Navigating Value-Based Care, Mapping Your Future. And this book was recently published by the Medical Group Management Association. Jennifer and I have studied public speaking together, and we're currently working on the intersection of self-care and value-based care. And that will be some of what we'll talk about today. Welcome, Jennifer. Thanks, Suzanne. Glad to be here. Yeah, very happy to have you. So you have had a whirlwind of things going on since the publication of your new book, which was just last month, right? Actually, it got a little bit delayed, and it is coming out uh, this month. This month, okay. So, so this month, yep. And I think some of the deadlines may have slipped a little. <laughs> And that's and just for our listeners, they can publish that they can purchase this on at the MGMA website. I'm assuming. Yeah, it'll be available on MGMA's website, but it'll also be available on Amazon. And um, once that's there, I will have that out and available publicly. Okay, that's good to hear. So Jennifer, there's you've written about many things in your book, and obviously it's a book that is very much needed. Uh, otherwise, MGMA would, wouldn't be supporting you as strongly as they are. There's a lot in the book, um, but if you could just encapsulate maybe two or three of the biggest challenges that you have seen that providers are facing when it comes to this concept of value-based care, what would you? How would you um, describe those steps? Yeah, so one of the things that um, I really like about the title of the book is it's Roadmaps to Value-Based Profitability, because everybody seems to be focused on one thing or the other. They're either talking about value-based care and focusing solely on the clinical piece of it, the medical side, and how you deliver care that balances quality and value, or people are focusing just on the payment part and looking at how do I maximize value-based payments when really it's a blend of the two and the value-based profitability part of it goes into not only having the care, but healthcare is still business. And so you need to be able to manage those two pieces together. Um, and I think that's probably one of, one of the biggest challenges is figuring out how to be profitable while moving into this new dynamic of how we're being reimbursed because it, it shifts how care is delivered and it requires a different focus on how your practice is structured. So some of the challenges are, um, first, sometimes it's knowing where to start. Um, and then after you get started, it's keeping up the momentum and knowing how to sustain a process. Switching from a traditional process of delivering care to moving to a system where you're more patient-centered and have outcomes, if you're starting from scratch, it could take you as long as 24 months to get there because you need to put in certain processes and technology in place to help manage that. Um, and I guess I really shouldn't even entirely say that because I'm reinforcing some of what I had mentioned is that focus on payment and technology and workflows. And lots of times people forget about the people part 
And the people part is really important. It's uh, engaging both patients and staff. So there's the balance of those pieces. It's not just looking at technology and processes. It's also making sure that people understand about the change and how they need to change and buying into the change. And that's probably the hardest part. Wow. There is, so there really is so much to consider. And what I hear you saying is that everyone's starting in a different place. Is that, what you're, is that pretty much what you're finding in terms of the spectrum of possibilities out there? Yes, because some, some practices, I mean, you have, if you look out in the medical community, you have a wide range of individual independent providers that may only have one doc in their practice to multiple health systems where they own multiple types of practices and cross the spectrum of specialty care, primary care, incorporate a hospital system. So yeah, you, you definitely have a wide variety of knowledge. You have a wide variety of resources and um, even a desire to move forward. Some, some people are deciding that this is just the final push to get out of medicine, which is frightening in a lot of ways. Um, and that dealing with this level of change is complex. Hmm. Well, and yes, it is complex. And it's interesting, I think, um, I had spoken to a, an executive at one of the health systems just last beginning of last week, and I actually ended up writing a blog post about this conversation because it struck me, right? We were talking about self-care and value-based care and the fact that, you know, there is an intersection here. And I, in some ways, I heard you talk about that, too, when you, talked, when you said, you know, look, there's a people piece here. There's your employees. There's your staff. There's the patients. It's not just technology. And this particular executive said to me, you know, look, this is, it's needed. We need self-care. We need engagement. But the bottom line is, right now, the, the operational challenges are extremely great in healthcare. And that needs to be addressed first. So when you're out there, and I know you do work for a, a myriad of, of different types of providers um, and payers, but so when you're out there, what do you see in terms of this operate? Like, what is the biggest operational challenge that people are potentially dealing with that they need to get over? What's the hump they need to get over in order to get to the next step? A lot of it does have to do with technology and dealing with uh, electronic health records. And one, they're not entirely user friendly. And I think part of the shift is that people have not quite gotten to the point of connecting the value that you're getting out of collecting data to making it meaningful and useful where when you're interacting with a patient, you're able to have more information than you could if you just had it, whatever sitting in the top of your head and that ability to retain information. I think that's probably one of the biggest challenges and um, the other piece of that still goes back to the people part. You can put uh, new technology in place, but if you haven't gone through the process of making sure that it makes sense for the person that's using it, you're gonna meet resistance. And you can put the most beautiful workflow process in place, supported by technology, but if you don't have the buy-in, you're 
you're going to sort of swim and get stuck in your changing and moving forward. So some of it, while there are operational changes, again, I sort of think people overlook the people part of it. And that's overcoming that resistance to change. Yeah, that's an excellent point because this really is, I mean, it's change at the big level. So it's transformational change, right? And just like any change, and, and I know you talk about this in your book, you know, you, you need to get everybody moving or rowing in the same direction. And one way that you begin that process is by crafting a vision. You know, this is where we're all going together. Get everybody, you know, in that strategic process, get everybody moving together, right? And so, so who is, and you need a leader to start that process. So who do you believe or who have you seen, I guess, in your, you know, the work that you've done out there who is the best individual within an organization to take on that role? I don't think it's just one individual. And that may be one of the challenges or things that may be overlooked. Because you have a piece where there's the doctor uh, having a, a physician that is a champion and a leader through this process helps because it helps filter to other medical professionals if you're talking to doctors or nurses and it's important are you getting an echo okay it's important for the physician to be a champion because they have the connection with individuals like nurses and other doctors in order to help make those changes but you also need someone on the administrative side if you're in a larger organization. There are a lot of roadblocks that need to be tackled, things like funding, authority, and having somebody that has a high enough executive level to be supportive. And that's not usually just a physician. So having a joint process where you have somebody more on the administrative side as well as in the medical or clinical side, Having those two are important. And I know one of my experiences that I had um, a few years ago when the state of Maryland threw out a program where they enrolled providers in a program where they offered incentives to patient-centered medical homes that if you were able to perform well on the demonstration of outcomes, you received incentive money. And what I ended up going through is looking at the practices that earn the top the top 10 practices that earn the most money under the incentive program. And I went through everything. I went through their NCQA requirements. I went through and looked at what they filed for a patient-centered medical home. I looked at workflows. I looked at processes. I looked at reports. I interviewed a ton of staff. And honestly, what it came down to at the end, that report was really hard to write because it came down to this intangible leadership quality. It all was driven by who was the leader, and in a lot of cases, that did end up being the physician at the local practice. And I remember being struck by one thing in particular. As part of this project, I interviewed um, a few practices that were part of a very large health system down in, down in Maryland. And I met with somebody within the quality department at their corporate location because of how the system was structured. And I remember being struck by the fact that the woman said, we were actually kind of surprised at the practices that did well. They weren't the ones we thought 
were going to do well. And, um, but I knew from having been on site at those practices, the physician in that office was incredibly on board with the concept of being patient-centered and was able to encourage everybody in the office to care about that. And the people wanted to do well because of that individual. So yes, leadership absolutely is critical. Wow. So, and that's, I mean, we hear this over and over again, and this is going back for decades and decades about the role of physicians and pulling them in. So when you, when you're describing, and I love that description when you said, you know, this is this intangible fact, leadership factor that essentially came down to the difference between those that succeeded and those that didn't. But yet you're able to put some tangibility to it. It's in every case, or at least it sounds like in almost all the cases, it was a physician. And these physicians were in a, were they providing care as well as administrating? They were doing both? Or what, what was their role in the organization? They were necessarily in administration. They were definitely providing care, but they were sort of the lead physician in the office. So there were other physicians there, but they were the primary person um, that was responsible for being part of this pilot program and um, and promoting and getting staff on board with being focused on how do we deliver better services to patients so that we can close care gaps and look at outcomes. Right, and so they were an, more of an informal leader then, it sounds like, they just... Yes, yes, they were not necessarily on a hierarchy, of uh, you know an org chart type of situation, but it was definitely a combination of both. Yeah. So then the question becomes, and I'm sure you probably talk about this somewhere in your book and a, and a lot of the work that you're doing. You know, how do you replicate that? How does an organization replicate that finding that you've identified that appears to be essential to success in this value-based um, transformation work? Do you, do you have any guesses around how that, I know. It's, it's you know, no, it's, um, that's really a tough challenge. And it's not just true in uh, the provider space. I mean, this is a challenge that I think any business has to deal with. And it's understanding who people are at the core and knowing what motivates an individual and pulling together the concept of teams Team-based care is, is shifting. Uh, in the past, the way providers' offices have been structured is it's the support personnel around a provider, a physician, for how they are seeing patients. And, you know, it's the medical assistant that helps room the, the patient and support it. Maybe there's a nurse involved or how, how that team works. And it's very much so geared towards the physician always being the leader. And I think as we're shifting towards value-based care, some of that dynamic's going to change. Um, and that's going to be difficult. And it challenges a lot of sort of natural, inherent respect for authority and for people that probably have a level of education that is significantly greater than, than other people in the office. And so... That's kind of an interesting challenge. But as far as getting the intangible piece of it, some of it has to do with looking at the skills and characteristics that the doctor brings to the table. But it may also be looking at what are the skills 
that other individuals at the table in that practice bring because you need to have a balance. And I think on the team-based care, that's going to be our biggest area for opportunity of being able to encourage people to identify who are leaders that may or may not be a physician, but encouraging people also to take ownership and having that, uh, I don't like the word empowerment because I think it gets way overused lately. Um, but the idea of bringing out the best in people and, and encouraging people to take ownership of the relationship with the patient, how they interact together with each other, and um, sort of the concept that we can all be leaders to the extent of pulling out those leadership qualities of really looking at what's within your authority, taking, taking ownership, I think, is probably the biggest thing. Um, somebody that's willing to take the ball and run with it and not say, that's not my job. So. Those are very good recommendations. So hopefully our, our listeners are taking some notes out there. But it also occurs to me as, as we're talking about this need for transformation and as you're talking about the, the fact that getting closer to a patient, you know, focusing more on what motivates people, the people piece of this transformation, one of the things that we're bumping up against in healthcare, as you know, we're all very aware, is this 50% burnout rate. So, you know, in, in general, 50% of healthcare providers are reporting some level of burnout symptomology. So that this concept of addressing the people piece of this brings that even more, more um, to the forefront, right? Because we've got to address keeping people as well as possible, which brings me to my next question, which of course I'm very interested in because you know here at Seoul, what we are focusing on is this self-care, this concept of self-care and the fact that self-care feeds directly into value-based care initiatives. In fact, in some ways you might say they're one and the same. When you look at the New England Journal of Medicine's definition of value-based care, it basically says, you know, um, providers, hospitals, physicians, et cetera, are paid based on patient health outcomes. And essentially under these agreements, providers are rewarded for helping patients improve their health, reduce the effects and incidence of chronic disease, and live healthier lives which is, of course, possibly the crux of this whole conflict or, you know, moving the challenges around moving forward, because right now, for the most part, providers are still paid to care for sick people. So what we're saying is, yeah, but you got to keep them healthy, right? So when you think about this concept of keeping people healthy, self-care, the whole spectrum, whether it's patients, providers, administrators, and value-based care, what are some of the nuggets of um, wisdom that you might be able to share with us based on your own experiences out there uh, working with providers? Because I think burnout is a big issue. Um, and I think there's a certain level of growing awareness about burnout. But it's interesting because I don't know how much has been promoting self-care. There are some programs out there that are looking at employee wellness and doing things to help boost morale, but not necessarily the focus on self-care. And I think self-care is important. And I think one of the interesting intersects when you're talking about engaging patients to be healthier how is it that you can set a good example for your patient 
if you're not taking care of yourself. And um, I don't know that that's really come to the forefront. So that's one of the great things about Soul and the programs that you offer is really pulling that out and highlighting it. Because lots of times we are really stressed. There's a lot to deal with and you feel overwhelmed. Your day never goes quite like it's supposed to. The schedule never stays on schedule. And patients, sometimes it may feel as they, they do the best to blow up your schedule. And uh, trying to balance that and, and maintain your health and wellness is important. But I don't think that it's really gained traction as far as, as looking at it from both the employee perspective as well as the patients. So it sort of comes down to, uh, are we giving the message of do what I say, not what I do, or are we practicing what we preach? Yeah, and you know, it's interesting, Jennifer, because the work that you and I have done parallels each other in so many ways. So you've talked about the role of the leader in value-based care transformation, and the work I've done around self-care, I've actually interviewed CEOs of health systems, and it, as it turns out, going back and looking at the leaders who had the highest ratings on their self-care, on their self-care assessments, they were also more likely to lead profitable hospitals. But I will say in those discussions, and these were all CEOs and leaders who I did not personally know because it was research, but I had some discussions where I had one CEO who actually said to me, he was obese, he had multiple chronic conditions, and he said to me, I put myself out there to my staff and I say, Look at me as, a, as an example of what not to do. And that just, lots of question marks in my head, right? Like, how do you move forward with value-based care and focusing on wellness, and you are the leader of an organization who is not taking, overtly not taking care of themselves. And I'm not saying, I'm not, I don't want to create, we don't, certainly don't want to create a prejudice or a bias against individuals with chronic conditions. 83% of us have them, right? But there's a difference between having a chronic condition and saying, look, I'm going to, I'm not going to help myself as this leader of this organization and having a chronic condition and at least being an example, right? So that your, your staff sees you eating well, uh, setting, you know, maybe being in the walkathon or I, I don't know, whatever it might be, right? So again, based on your, the experiences that you've had, what, um, what does that bring up for you or any, any suggestions you might have in terms of value-based care and some of the, some of the leaders that are running organizations? Yeah, a lot of it, um, it would be interesting to take the philosophies that are outlined for how you engage patients and sort of apply them to yourself as you're looking at self-care. Um, I know for me, that has been sort of an eye-opening process for me as I'm working through this professionally and working on all this documentation and dealing with it also personally of assessing my own health and wellness and balance and why is it that it's really easy to say you should do this and yet when it comes to applying it to yourself that's really difficult. Um, I haven't seen very many practices that are pursuing those options. I think it becomes a very much so of a personal choice and that's true even when you're dealing with patients. Um, and so in a lot of ways, we become our own patients 
And for me, what I think it comes down to is one, understanding where you are within the process of being willing to change for yourself, having the education to know what it is that you're supposed to do. Uh, so, you know, it's like knowledge and skills and the ability to change. And some of it has to do with just working towards taking incremental steps. So again, I think it's very interesting that there are parallels, both as you're looking at changing your practice to moving to value-based care, but there's also a personal journey that can go within that as well. Because you're, if you're talking about leading change and being able to manage change, how do you do it for yourself as well? And how do you put the same focus that you have that maybe you're putting into your practice or your business and that you're driven on a professional level? How do you adapt that to making it on the personal side as well? And that's, that's really going to be a big challenge because it's not only about ourselves, but also we need to be able to employ that mentality with patients. And for me, a lot of that, I think, comes down to understanding where the person is, where they're starting, and understanding what motivates that person. So I'm really happy to see that there's a growing shift of awareness on behavioral health as well. I spent a lot of time in behavioral health, and that bridging to change is a big component in behavioral health, because it isn't, I mean, for some people, yes, they don't really completely understand what they need to change. But for the most part, I think most of us know we're supposed to be doing things differently, but we don't. And that is, that is all mental. That's not a physical issue. And if you've ever gone through trying to lose weight and become healthy, it's not about going to the gym and doing the work. It's about mentally telling yourself you need to go to the gym and that you're going to do it. It isn't that always the physical part of it. So it's a, it's an interesting crossover. Yeah, that's, that's, you make some excellent, excellent points. And this concept of change, one of the things that health systems can do, and maybe it's in the behavioral health function, is providing tools for patients, whether it's coaches or some kind of technology, wearable technology. And I know that's obviously becoming more and more popular, but, but thank you for your words of wisdom. On As I continue to listen to you, this phrase keeps going through my head that I know I've seen on billboards. In fact, some health systems are actually using it as their tagline. But the, the, ta the, uh, the phrase is high tech, high touch. So, you know, in healthcare, we want to be both high technology. We want to embrace both of those, high technology and high touch. And that seems to be sort of the ping pong of, of what our discussion is about today. Technology, yes, it's necessary, but we can't really do this effectively without the high touch piece of it. And I think that will be something that healthcare will be uh, struggling with or addressing to to put it maybe more positively, addressing for the next several decades, which is exciting. It is, and um, it, it'll be interesting to watch and see where uh, artificial intelligence goes, because that has, I think, real potential on the technology side to get rid of some of the manualness of what we're dealing with, with trying to have the high tech. And if AI is able to put the right tools in place that makes it easier that you can focus on the high touch, then 
I think that's a very interesting, interesting possibility for the future. We're not there yet. And, um, you know, I think there's some misconceptions about what artificial intelligence is. I know when I first was introduced, I was like, there's no way I'm going to want to be treated by a robot. That's really not what it's about. <laughs> it's about giving the tools and empowering your physician or the nurse practitioner or whoever you're dealing with to be able to take away some of uh, some of the parts that are time consuming and really contributing to burnout and the lack of joy in the work because physicians and nurses didn't get into the work that they do to be plugging away on an electronic health record and looking at reports and data, yet we're asking them to close care gaps and improve people's health and wellness. The technology should be a tool to help you get there, but really in order to make that shift, you're right, it's the high touch. It has to do with that personal connection. It's not about the technology. Although we'll see, maybe millennials, they may be a little bit different. Although I did, uh, I did read an article that I thought was a very interesting perspective of um, millennials may want to do more online until they have their first child. Then does that change with now you're responsible for this little tiny being and can you really do that through video chat? <laughs> or are you going to want the comfort of going to see a doctor in person and yeah, well, babies have your child taken care of. Yeah, babies give a whole new definition to high touch, right? <laughs> yes, absolutely. Aww. Well, thank you. And so it's different when you're caring for somebody else, too. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. Thank you so much, Jennifer. I really appreciate the time that you've taken to uh, share some of your expertise, and there's so much more. I do want to mention again the name of your book. I think I got it wrong initially. It's actually... Can you repeat the name of your book to everyone so we leave them with this? It is Roadmaps to Value-Based Profitability, and it's a practice transformation guide. So it goes through a very high level of all the different pieces and parts and components that you need to consider as you're moving towards value-based care, which it's not just value-based care. It's being profitable while you're at it. Mm -hmm. Very well said. And so as, uh, as we come to a conclusion, I'm wondering if you could share with our listeners what your favorite self-care practice is. Uh, my favorite self-care practice is one that I currently can't do right now. I love to go walk, especially when the weather's nice. It's summertime. And um, for me, being able to tune out and listen to music, although there tends to be things going on in the back of my head. But I just like getting outside and being in the fresh air and being able to um, to get at least a daily walk-in for me is important. So right now I have a broken ankle, so I'm not uh, doing too much walking. And it is, I'm trying to find some other ways of making sure <laughs> I keep my balance. A, a little walk around the block here and there in a walking boot is uh, is about all I can tackle right now. So, well, thank you for sharing the, your, your favorite practice and also for what's going on in your life right now, but it sounds like it's allowing you to adapt and find something new. So you never know. You might find something that yeah, you Yeah, you, you find other things of just being grateful that uh, I think gratitude is a, is a big self-care practice as well and focusing on the, the positive for me. For sure. All right. Well, thanks again, Jennifer. Thanks for joining us. And we'll make sure we post the title of your book as well with the podcast so folks can go ahead and purchase that. Thanks.